0: Hello everyone, and a special hello to my mates down under, across the pond, to infinity and beyond, wherever you may be at this particular point in time, whomever you may be with, or whatever walk of life you come from, hello to you my friend, hello until we meet again. In case you can't tell, I might have partied hardy last night, but I'm still up and running, my pistons are still pumping, and I'm happy to be here and offer you the treat of my company for the next little while, and especially the treat of my wonderful vocal tones. Now then, we are fast approaching the end of February, but it looks like it may extend into March and even April. I have two big ones for you in this episode, another one next week, and then we are on the road to WrestleMania weekend. It's amazing how WrestleMania has turned into an entire weekend of festivities, not just for WWE, but the entire pro wrestling community. I love that it really brings everyone, whether fan or promotion, closer together. I'm about to kick things off with the first review, and then we'll take a short break for the weekly news brief before closing out the show with a review of the WWE's last stop on the road to WrestleMania. TNA had a pretty decent start to the weekend themselves, They presented their latest big show, it was called No Surrender, and we were all treated to it Friday night. The show took place from the Big Easy in New Orleans, and the main card got underway with two TNA originals duking it out for a chance at the World Heavyweight title. It was Frankie Kazarian against Eric Young. You know, I'm all for Kazarian as a heel, as I think he's always been better at it than he has been as a babyface, though I'm still a little unclear on his motivation for turning in the first place. Eric Young is another guy who's arguably done his best work as a heel character, but unlike Frankie, I think he's had just as much success on the babyface side, though his current character still feels a little darker, and I don't think it necessarily works as a fan favorite. The match was good, I don't want to say great, but it had its moments, and it was a fine opener. Young blocked an attempt at the flux capacitor, and then shoved Kazarian off the turnbuckles, and nailed him with a flying elbow drop, and then a backstabber. Kaz came back with a fade to black, but Young responded and surprised Kazarian and me, actually, with a crucifix for the win. After the match, Kaz pulled the ref back into the ring to complain about the outcome and then leveled the ref with a clothesline and continued doing a number on him until more officials ran out to hold him off. Gia interviewed the grizzled Young veterans up next about their upcoming title match. They basically said the ABC's time is up, and when they see the GYV coming, they should grit their teeth. And that led us right into the tag title match. It was actually the third match in a best-of-three series, as each team had picked up a win in recent weeks, but this one was for the gold. Before the match started, there was a shot of rap star Westside Gun sitting at ringside. GYV immediately set their sights on the injured arm of Ace Austin, which was weakened in their previous encounters. Bay tags in quickly, but then he's the one isolated in the heel corner until Ace got the hot tag. He hits a dual missile dropkick to his opponents and then a Fosbury flop to the floor. ABC tries for the 1-2 sweep, but they're countered into dual submissions by their opponents. GYB hits back with an impressive tope into a doomsday device on the floor. As the ref is momentarily distracted by the non-legal participants, Bay pulls out a scarf. He then hits the Art of Finesse, followed by the Fold by Ace and the Champs Retain, which was another kind of surprising outcome. Steve Macklin and the Rascals are backstage, they cut a promo and the rascals basically warn that they are taking the tag division back over. Khan versus PCO is up next. PCO misses an early cannonball on the floor and then also misses the deanimator later in the match, but then Khan gets DQ'd after a chair shot on the floor. Why this was not a no DQ match in the first place is beyond me. Khan proceeds to do a number on PCO after the match and also manhandles the officials. They fight all the way to the top of the entrance ramp and then Khan ties PCO's hands to one of the fixtures in the entrance tunnel and wraps a chair around PCO's neck and then twists it. Alex Shelley is in the back with his corner men Kushida and Kevin Knight as well as Chris Sabin, basically giving them a pep talk before their title match later. He asks Kushida and Knight not to throw in the towel and Sabin asks if he needs him out there, but Shelley says Sabin should focus more on his own title defense. MK Ultra challenged Decay for the knockout tag titles up next. There was a weird sequence where Kelly and Rosemary were basically tied in a leg lock or something, and they kept both sitting up right in each other's faces, almost butting heads. Masha tagged in and blocked an attempt at the spear, and then countered into a snowplow on, I believe, Rosemary to pick up the win and take the titles. After the match, MKUltra attacks Decay, but then Danny, Luna, and Jody Threat run out and chase them off. The System 4 are backstage, and again, I haven't seen a more random group outside of a Die Hard movie, but Moose basically requests that none of them throw the towel in. Josh Alexander versus Simon Gotch is next. I thought they did a really good job in recent weeks of explaining the history between these two and trying to tie it all together. This was a really good technical match, probably the best of Gotch's career, but Alexander has probably had better. They traded forearms back and forth, and then Gotch starts to target Alexander's back with a senton onto his back as he's draped over the ring apron. Gotch manages to avoid an attempt at the ankle lock, but Alexander hits a powerbomb into a backbreaker, followed by the C4 spike for the win. I have to imagine that this signifies the end of Gotch's run in TNA, otherwise I'm not sure why he'd take a clean loss in his first big match. AJ Francis is backstage, continuing to try to recruit Rich Swan. Swan thinks Francis is just playing mind games ahead of their match this coming Thursday, and Francis says just because they're going to be opponents doesn't mean they have to be enemies. Alex Shelley challenged Moose for the world title up next in what is called a no-surrender match where to win, your opponent's corner must throw in the towel on their behalf. I don't know what would prompt anyone to do that, so the stipulation was kind of bizarre. Shelley locks on a Fujiwara armbar almost instantly. Moose comes back with a powerbomb into the ring apron and then traps Shelly's arm in one of the turnbuckles and whacks him in the hand with a chair. Shelly responds with a powerbomb off the top rope into a trash can, which was placed upright in the ring, and it looked like Moose just made contact on the edge of the can, which might have hurt more. Shelly then applied a cross face, but Moose made it to the ropes, and then Myers places brass knuckles on his hands. I guess you can call them Moose Knuckles, or maybe not. Shelly eventually goes back to the crossface, but this time wraps a chain around Moose's mouth. At this point, the cornermen start fighting at ringside, and then Alicia enters the ring, but is kind of forced out by Shelly through intimidation. Moose hits a spear off the distraction, and then a second spear with the chain wrapped around him, and then Kushida throws in the towel with a very little prodding. I'd imagine this will eventually lead to a Shelly vs. Kushida feud, which wouldn't be the worst thing. Moose then hits a third spear after the match. Second from the top was the knockouts title match with Jordan Grace defending against Giselle Shaw, cashing in her Queen of the Mountain opportunity. Before the match even starts, the concierge before Ash by elegance enters the ring to introduce her, as Ash was seated at ringside. I don't know about Ash, but this concierge guy is awesome. Giselle hits a Spanish fly off the ring apron, and then tries a springboard cutter in the ring, which Jordan blocks. Grace then delivers a spinning backfist, and then the juggernaut driver, and that was pretty much all she wrote. There is a short promo by Jake Something backstage. He basically says he'll be watching the X Division title match very closely and basically challenges the winner. And that leads into the main event for the X Division title with Chris Saban defending against Mustafa Ali. I'm very surprised that this is the match they chose to close the show, especially considering it was Ali's first match in the company. That said, it probably was match of the night, and these guys really put their working boots on. It might have taken a while, but I think Ali has finally found something that's worked. I love this whole political gimmick of his, and it makes sense since he's kind of politicked his way into the title match in the first place, or at least that's the way they made it seem. Ali comes out with an entire security team, which was a nice touch. He hits a 450 splash to Sabin's arm, and at least in the early stages of the match, I saw a very heel version of Eddie Guerrero in Ali, because Eddie used to expose that vicious side in the ring and pick apart opponent's body parts like that. Sabin regains the advantage, and then the good hands come out for the distraction. Saban tries for the cradle shot from the top rope, but Ali blocks it and hits a sunset powerbomb and then the 450 splash for the surprisingly cleanish win, and we have a brand new X Division champion to close out the show. I was honestly more surprised at the reception Ali got. This guy was almost treated like wrestling royalty, and fans were solidly behind him. So that was no surrender, and after speaking a little about politics in the previous segment, it seems like an appropriate enough transition as we get into the weekly news brief. Vince McMahon continues to make headlines, and not for any good reason. Wrestling veteran Paul Roma recently came forward and spoke with News Nation about the Vince McMahon scandal. Roma suggested that there may be a story during the time that he worked for the company in the late 80s, and maybe even worse than the recent accusations by Janelle Grant, though Roma declined to go into specifics. I guess it's easy to point fingers here, but it's almost kind of embarrassing as a wrestling fan to know that if it's Vince McMahon, chances are it's probably true. As I said previously, I wouldn't be shocked if more and more stories come out in the next few weeks. Following her knee injury at last week's NXT tapings, WWE star Shotzi confirmed this week that she tore her ACL, which would put her out of action for at least nine months. I want to wish Shotzi nothing but the best and hope she has a speedy recovery. Per Sports Illustrated, former WWE senior writer Jennifer Pepperman is officially All Elite. Pepperman will be the company's vice president of content development. This can only mean good news for AEW, I think, as in addition to her WWE experience, Peppermint also wrote for TV dramas and soap operas, and had a very strong relationship with Mercedes Monet during her time in the WWE, and Monet is of course rumored to debut in AEW in the coming weeks. Also announced this week, Dwayne Johnson's Seven Bucks production company is set to put together a biopic on the Nature Boy Ric Flair. And AEW will return to Arthur Ashe Stadium in New York City for this year's Forbidden Door event in June, as announced on X. And that is your news of the week. As much fun as we're having, it doesn't have to end here. WWE took us way down south this week for the final stop on the road to WrestleMania. It was Elimination Chamber, and it took place in beautiful Perth, Australia, and what a beauty it was. The show started with a wide shot of the stadium, which looked incredible, and also a wide shot of the crowd, which totally gave me Wembley Stadium, SummerSlam 92 vibes. The Women's Elimination Chamber was announced at the show opener, but before the bell rang, we got shots of several WWE talents arriving from earlier in the day, including Rhea Ripley, Nia Jax, Becky Lynch, Bianca Belair, Logan Paul, Randy Orton, and Kevin Owens ...who came to the building carrying a KO bear, which was a nice touch. In the women's match, it was Becky Lynch, Tiffany Stratton, Liv Morgan, Naomi, Bianca Belair, and Raquel Rodriguez... ...and it was to determine a number one contender for the WWE women's title on Raw. You know, as they entered the cage, it got me thinking that the structure has become way too advanced for my liking. I remember back to the first one in 2002, the cage was more of a weapon. But now it just looks like a toy and the participants don't even act like they're scared or intimidated by it. Just an observation. Anyway, Becky and Naomi start the match and have a pretty good couple of minutes of back-and-forth action. Becky manages to block a feel-to-glow attempt, and the crowd is exploding at this point with chants of, We want Tiffany or Tiffy time. I have to admit that of all the people in this match, I never would have expected her to receive the most overwhelming crowd response, but good for Tiffany. There was a unique spot outside the ring where Naomi is basically hanging from the wall of the cage and grips Becky's neck with her ankles and then basically swings her forward into the chains. Becky eventually goes down and then Naomi hangs off the cage and drops with a split leg drop. And then as the buzzer sounds, the crowd gets their wish as Tiffany Stratton joins the party. She executes handspring back elbows to each opponent in opposite corners of the ring. Liv Morgan joins the match next and often reminds me of a hamster that wants to be a tiger but I thought she did really well in this match. She basically runs Tiffany back and forth bouncing her off chamber pods and then Becky delivers a bexplex to Tiffany on the cage platform which used to be pure steel but is now padded I would think for safety reasons. Becky then applies a disarm her to Tiffany with Tiffany's arm stretched through the chains. Naomi sits atop one of the pods and then executes a sunset powerbomb to Liv, who is standing on the top turnbuckle. But before Naomi can capitalize, she is quickly rolled up by Tiffany for the first elimination. I bet she thinks she made a wise choice returning to WWE now. She did have a pretty good showing, though. Raquel Rodriguez enters the match next and appears to be suffering from the atmosphere down there, but good on her for still competing and doing a great job of it. She runs Becky into the chains a few times with a front slam, and then hits a follow away slam to Becky over the ropes and back into the ring. The other three women left in the match then work together against Raquel, who is the biggest threat at this point. Bianca finally enters the match, and her and Raquel go at it. Raquel tries for a slingshot suplex, but Bianca counters mid-move into a spinning DDT on the cage platform. She then stretches Raquel across the top turnbuckle, and Liv comes flying off the pod with a senton to her former partner. Not to be outdone, Tiffany, who is on the same pod, delivers a swanton onto the pile of standing opponents on the cage platform. As Tiffany climbs to the top turnbuckle, Liv meets her there and hits Oblivion off the top, pinning Tiffany for the second elimination. Raquel then executes a double Tejada bomb to both Liv and Becky, which looked amazing, but then Bianca hits Raquel with a KOD to eliminate her. The remaining three have a good sequence of counters in the closing minutes of the match. Becky manages to flip through an attempt of the KOD, and with Bianca a bit disoriented, Liv rolls her up to get the surprising elimination. And then literally seconds later, Becky plants Liv with a manhandle slam, and Becky Balboa is on her way to WrestleMania. There wasn't a lot of wasted time on this show, as we basically went right into the next match. It was for the tag team titles with the Judgment Day combination of Finn Balor and Damian Priest defending against Tyler Bate and Pete Dunne, now collectively known as New Catch Republic. Not a great name, but Cole noted that it's kind of a mishmash or tribute to their previous teams, so at least there's a reason for it. And you know what? Whenever a team gets a name, it always suggests that it's more of a long-term thing, which is good. The babyfaces get the early advantage until Priest connects with a solid right hand to Bate, effectively killing that momentum. The babyfaces turn the tides, and then Dirty Dom gets involved with a cheap shot. The big strong boy Bait comes back with an impressive airplane spin to Priest, and then Dunn goes for the pin, but Dom reaches in and breaks it up. The ref notices the interference, though, and ejects Dominic from ringside. The babyfaces later hit a double Tyler driver to Bait, but Priest breaks the pin. There's a bit of an awkward sequence where Priest goes for the razor's edge... He was supposed to be tripped and fall into Balor, which would have crotched him on the top turnbuckle, but Priest ends up falling a little too early. Rather than improvise, though, he gets up and noticeably pretends to fall into Balor, which was very sloppy. The babyface team then delivers a double burning hammer to Priest, and Graves' name drops Kenta Kabashi, something we'd never hear during the Vince era. Priest comes back with a double south of heaven from the top rope, and then Balor lands with a coup de grace on Dunn to finally win the match. Great match, and the right team ultimately went over. My only criticism is that Judgment Day is beating all these legit teams on both Raw and SmackDown, and if the plan is for them to drop the title to Miz and R-Truth and Mania, I know it finishes a story, but Awesome Truth is still a makeshift team, and much like Kevin and Sammy last year, I don't see it being anything long-term, which I think may end up devaluing the tag belts in the long run. Bobby Lashley is shown stretching backstage preparing for the upcoming men's elimination chamber. Austin Theory then takes center stage. He insults the Aussie crowd before introducing Grayson Waller for the Grayson Waller effect. This is the point in the show where they hit a bit of a slump, in my opinion. I'm not sure why they felt the need to add this segment other than the obvious, which was to get Seth and Cody on the show, and also get Grayson Waller as hometown pop, but aside from that, this segment I thought basically accomplished nothing. Waller almost immediately brings out both Seth and Cody. They basically each provide an update. Seth says he's only a few short days away from being medically cleared to return to the ring. Waller then asked Cody if he thought he was being selfish by denying fans a match between Roman Reigns and The Rock. The crowd erupts into chants of Rocky sucks at this point. Cody suggests that he was about to explain why he stepped away from the main event initially just to step back in, but instead he said that his schedule between now and WrestleMania is wide open and he wants a match with The Rock. I'm not sure what other big shows they have planned between now and then, but I would think that match will be booked on night one of WrestleMania, which means Roman Reigns will likely also have a second match. Theory cuts in at this point and continues to insult the crowd and both Seth and Cody. He then starts spouting off some classic rock catchphrases until Seth attacks him. Cody then drops Theory with a Cody cutter and Seth hits the stomp, with Waller just kind of standing in the background watching the whole thing kind of awkwardly. KO and Logan Knight are also shown in the back prepping for the chamber match, and that's next on the card. It's the men's elimination chamber to determine a number one contender for the World Heavyweight title, currently held by Seth Rollins. LA Knight starts the match with Drew McIntyre, and the crowd almost immediately starts chanting CM Punk. Drew does a great job of acknowledging the crowd with a go-to-sleep taunt, and then tries to hit the go-to-sleep, but Knight avoids it. Knight then repeatedly bounces McIntyre's head off one of the chamber pods. He then makes his way to the pod where Kevin Owens is and does the same thing, only this time Owens is punching the pod from the inside every time Drew connects with it. Owens enters the match next and hits a chokeslam on Knight. Cole noted that Owens doesn't usually deliver a chokeslam, but promised a young kid at a make-a-wish function that he would deliver the move in the match. Owens then hits a codebreaker to Drew while landing with a senton on Knight. Lashley enters the match next and renews his rivalry with Drew. Orton then enters the match and hits a draping DDT to Owens on the cage platform, and the announcers pointed out that Orton has apparently hurt his back. I'm not sure what that was from, but this was either a legit injury or a masterful job of selling by Orton. Hopefully he's okay. Logan Paul enters the match last and had a marker with him that he used to apparently write the words KO sucks on the inside of his pod, which was great. As Paul is about to be released from his pod, KO is waiting for him on the outside and basically forces the door open. KO then starts beating on Paul from inside the pod, and then Lashley throws KO through one pod, and then hits a running spear to Logan through a pod on the opposite side. Lashley apparently hurt himself delivering the move, and then Drew capitalized with a Claymore outside the ring. He hits another Claymore to Lashley inside the ring for the first elimination. LA Knight then starts building some momentum. He hits both Orton and Drew with a BFT, but then out of nowhere, AJ Styles attacks Knight from behind with a steel chair, and apparently AJ snuck into the chamber as the refs were trying to get Lashley out. AJ then hits a Styles clash to Knight on the chair, and McIntyre rolls over to eliminate Knight. KO then hits Drew with a pop-up powerbomb and then a stunner on Logan Paul. He goes for a second stunner on Orton, but Orton blocks it and hits an RKO to eliminate Owens. Paul is the first to his feet and pulls out a pair of brass knuckles from his trunks, and they gets all cocky, taking way too long to put the nuts on his hand, allowing Orton to sneak in an RKO out of nowhere to eliminate Paul. Orton then hits another RKO on Drew, but before he could go for the pin, he is absolutely cold-cocked by Paul, who finally has the brass knuckles on his hand, and this opens the door for Drew to pin Orton and punch his ticket at WrestleMania. Seth versus Drew should be a fine match, but it's already been seen a couple of times recently, and I feel like this match needs some kind of hook to get the fans interested in seeing a third match. I think it either gets a stipulation or Priest cashes in on Rollins before Mania and the match becomes a triple threat. Either way, it needs something different than their previous encounters. Triple H takes center stage next. He basically just thanks the crowd for welcoming WWE into their home. And that leads into the main event for the Women's Championship on Raw with Rhea Ripley defending against Nia Jax. This was probably the weakest match on the card, but I can understand why they made it the main event though I was expecting a much bigger reaction for Rhea. I think Tiffany even got more of a reaction. Rhea almost immediately went for the rip tie, but Naya fought out of it with back elbows. For the rest of the match, Naya basically targets Rhea's back. She applies a torture rack and then delivers a Samoan drop from the middle rope and a second Samoan drop onto the announce table at ringside, but it doesn't break. And then Naya delivers an elbow drop, which finally crashes Rhea through the table. Back in the ring, Naya hits the Annihilator, but Rhea kicks out, and I think they've done a really good job of protecting that move. I believe this is the first time that anyone's ever kicked out of it. Rhea then fires back with a superplex and finally hits the Riptide to keep the title. This was definitely the right call, but I wonder what this now means for Naya at WrestleMania. Considering their interaction at the Rumble, I can definitely see them doing something with her and Jade Cargill, but the challenge is, you want to keep positioning Jade strong— and I'm not sure if Naya is the right opponent to do that, as I think the match like that will just expose her weaknesses. So that wraps up another week of events. Normally at this time, I would be previewing the AEW Revolution show, but it occurs to me that that event is going to be on the Sunday night instead of Saturday, meaning that I'll have plenty of time to do that in next week's episode. Until we meet again, I leave you with an ABC-ya.